Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. So, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this book. Thank you for the revealed word, the preserved word. Thank you for your word, which is able to transform us, to change us, to save us, to equip us for everything that you have for us. Thank you for your word. Open our eyes to it. Open our ears to it. Open our hearts to it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You can be seated. And you can open your Bibles to Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Anybody remember that uh, mnemonic? Go eat popcorn. I learned Gentiles eat pork chops. Go eat popcorn. That's so secular. All right. All right, all right, all right. I got a sermon in here somewhere amongst all this stuff. So, yeah, we're starting on Colossians. This is another one of what are known as the prison epistles, a a group of letters that Paul wrote, uh, particularly during his first Roman imprisonment. He was was a prisoner of Rome a couple times. He was a prisoner that we know of a total of four times, but he wrote some important stuff from prison. We've already looked at two of them, Ephesians and Philippians, and then there's this one and there's Philemon. These were, all these letters were written during his time in Rome, and remember He's not chained in a dungeon. He's, uh, he's still a prisoner, though. This is, this is house arrest. He's able to live in a place. He's under guard. He's never left completely unsupervised. He can't leave. He can't, certainly can't leave the city. He, but he can have visitors. And so he's, God has blessed him. He is even, as he's alluded to in the letter we just read, hey, the, the Caesar's household greets you. He had a relationship with certain officials in the Roman government that had kept him prisoner. I believe many of his guards were probably saved under Paul's ministry. Uh, So, but you think, well, it's no big deal. Why even call it a prison? Because you know what Paul's heart was. Paul, he writes about it. How I long to see you. Whether he was in prison or whether he wasn't, he was always talking about, God willing, I will pay you a visit soon. My heart is full of desire to see you, that I can impart some spiritual gift to you, that you can impart something to me. This is, that he knows they have responded to his message, but many of these people, including this church he's writing to, the one in Colossae, had never met him. He had never been to Colossae. Uh, Epaphras, who's mentioned a couple times in this letter, was probably the pastor. He was probably converted under Paul's ministry, went back and founded this church. And so Paul has, is, is hearing things and has heard things about Col- uh, Colossae, and, and, and he'd written another letter, which he refers to, but we don't have, that he wrote to Laodicea. And so he's got these things to say to them based on what he knows about them, but he's never met him. It is his heart to do this. And for a guy like that, who wants to travel and meet the people his ministry has affected, he can't go. He really is a prisoner, okay? But he's, it doesn't stop him from writing, and thank God he did. And again, I believe he knew what he was doing, that, he, that these letters were not just for them, but for us. Uh, he, uh, Epaphras, who I mentioned, 
may have written Paul a letter asking for instruction or advice, but I think it's more likely that he actually visited him. Uh, there was an urgency here. He, there were some doctrinal problems at Colossae. And he was concerned with, hey, Paul, here's what's coming up. Tell me how would you address this. Tell me how to address it. There are certain things creeping into the church. He wanted to combat these errors before they became full-blown heresy and destroyed the church. The error was of a type known as Gnosticism. Some of you might be familiar with Gnosticism. Most of you are at least familiar with the term. If you ever read, if you've got a decent Bible that even gives you a cursory introduction to these letters, it's a, it's a word that shows up a lot. Mostly what we have encountered in Paul's letter so far when we're dealing with error, who is Paul generally the maddest at? Who is the group of people that Paul is combating when he's, when he's, when he's combating uh, error. It's the Judaizers, right? We've talked about them again and again, how Paul, Paul's frustration, Paul being a Jew of Jews, is saying, you don't let the Jewish Christians come in, and uh, not just Jewish Christians, but the Judaizing Christians come in and steal your liberty. Don't let them bring you back under the law. They're making too big a deal of circumcision when the true circumcision is circumcision of the Spirit. And you have that. Here, Gnosticism is something a little bit different. It's, and I'm no expert on Gnosticism, all right? And there are several strands of it. But generally and essentially, the Gnostics believe that, number one, what we would call sin is really just ignorance. Uh, and that the key to salvation, and they would understand salva- salvation differently as well, is special knowledge, experience, esoteric knowledge. The, you know, the word esoteric is that which... You know, but you can't explain to anybody else. Okay? Uh, that's a loose definition. So they're, they are into deeper knowledge, deeper experience. And so, yeah, there's something mysterious and mystical. I've told you a story, some of you. I, in fact, I've told the congregation the story a number of times. So there are bound to be people I haven't, uh, who haven't heard it. There was a, a young guy uh, a couple years behind me in high school who uh, got saved uh, through, our, uh, through, through the Campus Life Ministry, Youth for Christ. don't know how many remember Campus Life, Youth for Christ. And he, got, he dug in. I mean, he was one of these full-blown, he didn't just kind of start coming and say the prayer and remain the same. He just kind of did one of these you know, black and white difference. And in fact, it kind of made his parents mad. He came from an unbelieving family, and they didn't want him being some uh, fanatic, right? But he stayed faithful for a number of years. And then, you know, life takes you different directions. People graduate. And I hadn't seen him in a while. And then I saw him. I ran into him out at Parkland one night. And I uh, said, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. He says, are you, still, are you still walking with the Lord? Yeah, yeah, still a believer. I said, where are you going to church? He goes, well, I don't really go to church. So I meet with a bunch of guys where we, you know, we share and we fellowship and we talk and teach one another. I said, oh, it's like a Bible study. Well, we don't use the Bible much anymore because we're into deeper kingdom truths. And I said, so in other words, you're a heretic. And I beat him and screamed at him. No, I didn't. We you know, tried to talk with him a little bit. But I, as soon as you hear something like that, just, if, you're not really, if you can engage them, if you have the opportunity to have a conversation, do it. But don't go, oh, really? Share these truths with me because I'd certainly like to go deeper. Yeah, I'm kind of getting bored with the Bible myself. I would like to get into something deeper than the word of the living God. All right? Don't ever fall for that. 
it's dangerous, okay? So, uh, and this is the kind of thing the Gnostics were into. Uh, They also, they had a view of God that includes lesser deities. And one of these lesser deities is actually the God who created earth. There's a creator of this earth, but he's not the God. There is a supreme being, but it's not the God who created the earth. And it especially includes, includes Christ as a lesser deity. He was not, according to the Gnostics, God, but merely one of many semi-divine beings who came to impart what he could of this salvific knowledge. Jesus was one of the masters of wisdom who could share his life and his experience and his wisdom with us to bring us to a higher plane, but he wasn't the only one. Very important to also know that the Gnostics believed that the material world was evil, even to a degree that the the material world was not even real. They have that in common with with a number of belief systems that are still around today. Um, there were strands of Gnosticism, therefore, that believed that physical sin, specifically sexual sin, was not sin at all. Because these sins involved the body, which could not be redeemed anyway. The body is material. The material world is not real. Everything material is evil. Therefore, we shouldn't be surprised. Anything that happens with the body is going to be done away with. The only thing that matters is the mental and the spiritual. And so, as a result, there was a lot of... uh, There was a lot of sexual sin among the Gnostics who crept into the church. And finally, not finally, but finally for now, for us, that the supreme God, which again they acknowledged is back there somewhere, is essentially unknowable. Since you can never really know God, all we can do and satisfy ourselves with is the attainment of knowledge. Let's get more and more knowledge, and that knowledge, as we get it, will make us more and more free. Now, I use the word free, but there's a curious mix of applications to this knowledge. Uh, One, we just mentioned, since one of these beliefs included the idea that the material world is false, the body can't sin because sin is not real, just the body can't learn. Only the mind can learn, only the spirit can learn. And so it led to a lot of unrepentant, sinful lifestyles. On the flip side, it also led to this extreme legalism, this ascetic lifestyle where people would come across a teaching, maybe even in the Old Testament, and say, aha, here is a key to enlightenment. I must live according to this law. I will never touch this food again. I will never touch this drink again. I will never sleep on such and such a date again. I will never miss such and such a feast. And they would start to really, really celebrate the fact that they were keeping all the minutia of the law and find their freedom there. So you, you kind of had extremes on both ends, you know, just total... Uh, libertinism, and then total asceticism on the other side, and neither one of them was truth. How far down the path did the Colossians go? I don't think very far. We really don't have a record of that. The impression we get from reading this letter is that they were still more or less an orthodox church, but had begun to adopt practices that if they had been left unaddressed, would lead them further from true freedom in Christ, and more importantly, Blind them to who Christ really is. So this is what Paul has in what Paul has in mind when he writes this. So let's go ahead and read the opening. We'll begin in Colossians chapter one, verse one. 
Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy is there with him writing this letter. Paul's writing it, but they're conferring. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before, the, uh, before in the word of, of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it also has in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear, and fel- our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the spirit. Now that's all... It's kind of a mouthful, but it's all pretty straightforward and so far so good. It's, he didn't open it. Hey, it's me, Paul. Listen, stupid. You're going down the wrong path. You're in a lot of error here, so let me tackle this. He starts with the good stuff he knows. Ever since we heard of how you received the word of God, and I know what word of God you received because I know who delivered it to you. The Epaphras is a faithful minister, and we are so thankful that you have concern for the other saints. We want to let you know that that is reciprocated among these other churches, and certainly from me, we are grateful to have you as brothers and sisters. And then picks it up in verse 9. For this reason, we also, pay attention to this and tell me what it reminds you of, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, what's that that remind you of any other passage we've read here in the last few months? The Ephesian prayers. You remember when we were back in, in in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, there are prayers in there that we have down through the years. There are books written about the Ephesian prayers and how we need to be praying them over ourselves and over one another. This is every bit as good as that and very, very similar. Same thing, that you're filled with the knowledge of his will and all power and wisdom and might and reminding him that all the deliverance, everything that was done to deliver you, God did it and that you'll be strengthened by his power. Everything started, he's already starting down this path. He's not arguing. He's simply establishing some things that at the, at the root of all this, at the center of all this, is God, the God, creator of the universe, and it is his power. You want knowledge? Needs to be his knowledge. You want to be delivered? He's the one who delivers you. You are not going to get this through human knowledge, human effort, human will. So this, I would highlight that whole passage we just read because that is a great prayer uh, to pray over yourselves, pray over your family, pray over your church and one another. Now, this is where we really get into it. Sorry if this first part has seemed rushed, but I really wanted to get to this part. Verse 15. He, speaking of Christ now, he is the image 
of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Boom. He cuts right to the chase. Make no mistake, Jesus is not just God's representative. He is God. He is not just the Son of God. He is God the Son. He is not just the most important person in creation. He is the creator. I don't think the divinity and deity of Christ is stated more clearly and more concisely anywhere in Paul's writings. He supports it. There's there's no mystery. Well, what does Paul think about Jesus? We know what he thinks about Jesus. But he just flat out spells it out so clearly and so purposefully here that it's beautiful. A couple things I want to point out to you. Uh, There are many who believe... Uh, they, and you know, I name all the groups. Uh, one of them would be like the Way International. I don't know how uh, active they are these days. Uh, the other, another one would be the Jehovah's Witnesses, who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but don't believe He is God. Okay, and uh, think well, what's it matter? Well, it does matter here, and, and Paul spells it out. For one thing, I mean, this, this, uh, you'd be arguing with the Word of God if you say He's not. But one of the things they will point to is say, well, see, it says right here that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, there might be translations that word it that way. But say, he was born. He, he he's he a created being, but he was the first created being. That's why he's preeminent. That's why he's important. Because God created Jesus first. But that's not what this verse says. It doesn't say he was the first one created in creation. It says he is the firstborn over creation. That phrase, that word firstborn, is a positional description. It has nothing to do with the chronology of Jesus' birth. It's talking about the legal position that the firstborn. In this society, especially in Jewish society, the firstborn had a special significance. If there were, if there were uh, four kids, the inheritance didn't get split four ways. It got split five ways, and the firstborn got a double portion, got two portions. And the firstborn became the head of the family when the father died. So the firstborn had preeminence, and he's saying that the firstborn, which meant a lot to his readers, even carries into the cosmic realm. He is the ruler. He is the firstborn. This is his position over all creation. When it says he's the firstborn from the dead, there is a teaching out there. Now, I've not heard a lot of it, and so I imagine in some ways it's been twisted. In some ways, I'm sure it's been erroneously presented, where Jesus, the born-again man or the born-again God, that he was the first one to be born again as an example. Well, says firstborn from among the dead is not the same rebirth that you and I experience right we are dead in our sins okay until we receive the new birth that Jesus provides through his death burial and resurrection uh 
it can't mean that he was the first one to be resurrected from the dead, can it? Because Jesus performed, what, three resurrections before he ever was crucified? Except when you remember this. You bring eternity into the equation. Jesus has no beginning because he is God and God has no beginning. God operates outside of time. He created time when he created space and matter. And it tells us specifically in Revelation that Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. He's a lamb slain. He was resurrected in that sense before the foundation of the earth. He's the firstborn from among the dead. He is our example. His resurrection absolutely points to our resurrection. Jesus said that himself. One of the clearest examples of that promise he gives us in the book of John. Because I live, you will live also. Right? So this is what he's talking about here. He's just, it's, everything is about the preeminence of Christ. And again, in terms of the new man, his resurrection was the event that ushered in the era of true salvation. Victory over the devil. This new life being offered to every man who would believe it. It goes on to even make it more clear. Let's look at verse 19 here. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. All the fullness should dwell. This is, it goes back to this, when it says uh, the beginning of the passage we read just a minute ago. He is the image of the invisible God. A better translation is he is the exact representation of God. Jesus himself said that. It's one of my favorite things to quote especially when I'm talking about healing. Because when Philip, I think it was Philip, said, uh, you know, Jesus is preparing them for his death, this long discourse in John. Uh, you can read it in the 14, 15, 16, 17 in there, when he's talking to his disciples, he's getting ready to go, and he's giving them the last-minute instructions. He's praying with them, and he prays, you know, pray that you'll be one with the Father, just as I and the Father are one. And Philip says, hey, Jesus, show us the Father. And that's enough. That's all we ever really wanted out of this anyway. We want to see the Father. And what was Jesus' response? Have I been, how can I have been so long with you and you still not understand? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen God. And I always bring that up in response to how would would God respond to sickness? How does God respond to sickness today? We have the exact representation of the Father in Jesus Christ. And how Jesus always responded to sickness was to heal the multitudes, all that came to him. Okay? You want to see how God would respond to anything? Look through the Gospels and see how Jesus responded to it. He is the exact representation of the Father. In him all the fullness of the Godhead Godhead dwelt bodily. In verse 20, And by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. That's it. When... Again, it's a, so he could have drugged this out. He could have spent chapter after chapter, page after page, slicing and dicing the Gnostic argument. But he's talking about what you're digging for. You're looking for enlightenment. You're looking for freedom. What you need is redemption. redemption. We need reconciliation. And here's how God did it. He didn't do it by dangling hidden knowledge out there for you to stumble across or experience or be led into by some guru. He did it by taking your sin 
laying it on Jesus, having him crucified in your place. He worked your reconciliation and your redemption by his blood on the cross. Meaning it's done, it's not up to you. Read here just a couple more verses. And you, verse 21, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above, and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Once again, how did God reconcile us to himself? In the body of his flesh through death. This is the center of the gospel message. The absolute, this is the place. There, let me put it this way. There is a place, absolutely a place, for the preaching and teaching of righteous behavior. There really is a difference between sinful behavior and righteous behavior. And Paul will get to that. It's right around the corner in this very letter. But he's laying the groundwork here that is absolutely crucial if the church at Colossae is going to stay on track. Christ, the Son of God, has done it. It is finished. If you have confessed him as Lord, if you have confessed him as your Lord and the Lord, you're saved. That's important. Because when people use the word Lord, you can mean it a couple of different ways. You know, the word simply means master. When people called him Lord in the, in, in the Gospels, they weren't necessarily calling him God. They were calling him master. Sometimes just as an honorific. And so you can say, well, Jesus is my Lord, meaning I'm a follower of Christ. But you also recognize that the word Lord has specifically uh, God God-intentioned meaning as well. The Lord. I am the Lord your God. And this is, of course, when we see that phrase, the Lord your God, it's usually L-O-R-D, all caps, and that really is Jehovah. So the word Lord is often used interchangeably with the name of God himself. And these are the things we need to... There are two central truths here. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is Lord, as in Jesus is God. But you can recognize that Jesus is God, or at least have some concept of that, without ever submitting to him as your Lord. That's the right way to start. Because somebody on the other side could say, well, I'm not sure I'm ready for all this deity stuff, but I do like Jesus as a role model, so I'm going to make him my Lord. Proper belief says he is the Lord, and therefore the only right response is to make him my Lord. He's going to be Lord. And eventually, as we read recently, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So much better to recognize now that since he is the Lord, you might as well get on board and make him your Lord. There's no fighting it at the end of the day. And you find yourself as Paul, kicking against the goads. God wants you in his family. 
He wants you serving him, but he wants you enjoying him. And we can't do that outside of the family. You know, the other approach, this, uh, the development into someone or something beyond this physical world, this, uh, this transcendental approach. Knowing your way out of sin or knowing your way out of sinful ignorance. This is my problem. I just don't know enough, so I'm going to immerse myself in this search for knowledge. I remember, I've, I may have, I've probably read it to you at one time or another. There's this little book of, of just kind of thoughts and poems written uh, back in the 60s, I think, by Lois, Lois Cheney, I think, wrote this book called uh, God is No Fool. And there's a little story in there about how she, she knew this guy back in high school or college who was searching for God. And he would talk about his search and how, as believers, they were fascinated and they were cheering this guy on. Oh, we know. We're, we are with you, man. And, and they loved talking to him and they loved the fact that he would read what they gave him. And then uh, as the months went by and then the years went by, the same people that had cheered him on and were so excited by him started to spend less and less time with him, lose interest in him, and finally to avoid him. And she wrapped it up by saying, See, he had fallen in love with his search. God just isn't that hard to find. I love that. Absolutely love it. And this is the thing. There are people who want to embark on a lifetime of enlightenment. I'm going to explore and I'm going to receive from what every belief system has to offer because ultimately they all come from God anyway. No, Jesus made some very clearly delineating statements about himself, separating himself from all these other things. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you want to pursue Christianity like a gradual enlightenment that will lead you out of sinful ignorance, uh, religions like Buddhism will be more satisfying to you. That kind of approach, this transcending human desire, that has much more, it, it, much more Eastern religion, Hinduism, Buddhism. You want to work your way to salvation. Christianity offers you no hope. If you're looking for something that is rigorous, just tell me what to do. I will climb every mountain. I'll swim every river. I will do whatever it takes to get my salvation. Christianity doesn't give you that. Hinduism and Buddhism will offer you several lifetimes worth of opportunities to do that. But the reward is not much of a payoff. It's kind of a nebulous concept. You're either absorbed into this collective consciousness or your ego is absolutely extinguished. This release. The Bible alone honors you as an individual, a real individual, a created being, an image bearer of the eternal God, a real person, an eternal person, and his plan is to enjoy him forever. Praise and worship team, come up here. Stand up, rest of you. This is not just what the message of Christ is about. This is what Christ is about. 
He values you as an individual. I can't find a scripture that says it like this. But I believe everything in scripture points to this. And it's something you've all heard before. If you were the only sinner on earth, Christ would have died for you. It's one thing to say he died for the world because after all there were billions of lives at stake. He loves you so much that he would have died for you if dying for you was the only way to save just you. He values your life. It was your life. You know, there's a great song. It's not everybody's cup of tea. It's not my cup of tea musically, but I absolutely love the message of it. When he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Well, that's blasphemy. When Jesus was on the cross, only God the Father was on his mind. It's not what the Bible says. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And that joy included you and me. Hanging here, going through this, means that I will be back in right relationship with my beloved but fallen creation. This is the only way. This is torture. This is literal torture. But it's totally worth it because you are totally worth it. He loves you that much. And it just breaks my heart. I admit, I respond childishly sometimes when I see somebody say, make some flip remark about Christianity or Jesus himself. I admit that sometimes nothing would be more satisfying or I feel like, I've never yielded to it as far as I know, I feel like there's nothing I want to do more that would be more satisfying than just put my fist through somebody's face who says something just stupid about Jesus. It wouldn't accomplish a thing, obviously. But I'm thinking, all the people, there's a, oh, wow. There's a great line in the Keith Green song song is, a, is, a, is called, How Can They Live Without Jesus? It's not the song that's making me do this. It's, it's the heart behind it. I think it's the last verse where he says, there's so many laughing at Jesus. Well, the funniest thing that he's done is love this whole stubborn, rebellious world while their hate for him just goes on. And love, just like that, will bring him back for the few he can call his friends. The ones he's found true, who've made it through, enduring until the end. How can they live without Jesus? I couldn't. Not having known him, knowing knowing him how I know him now, and looking at this world, I don't see how people live without Jesus. And I don't. And it breaks my heart to see people fighting against him. Give me just a minute here to chase a rabbit, but I'm not going to chase it very far. It always, it, it kind of frustrates me, and it kind of makes me laugh, but it mostly makes me sad when I see Christians, genuine believers, people I believe are genuine believers, fighting against the good things that God has for us, specifically something like healing. It's like, all right, I get it. Maybe you don't understand it. But why are you so adamant? It's almost like you will be utterly disappointed to find out that God still wants you well. You know what I'm talking about? It's not just, it's, it'd be one thing that said, oh, I would love to believe what you believe if you could just show it to me in Scripture, but I just don't see it. It's more like, oh, how dare you believe something like that? They don't want to believe. Why don't you even want to believe this? 
But the broader picture there is why are people fighting? If you've got some philosophical problems, if there are some historical things that you struggle with, that's one thing. But if you are fighting belief in Jesus, if you don't want to believe in Jesus, man, you just don't understand him. If they could see Jesus, and and I admit it, there are people who I envy. I covet the clarity with which they seem to be able to see Jesus. And yet at the same time, I'll boldly say, if these people who are fighting Jesus could just see him like I can see him, I know they would fall in love with him. Now, question is, what can I do to make them see Jesus like that? I need to be living out what I believe and what I see. I need to be praying for them because at the end of the day, no matter how much we love them, only God can reveal Jesus to them. Jesus himself said to Peter, when Peter confessed him as Christ, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. This was a huge confession. And what did Jesus say? Finally, somebody sees me for who I am. No, he said, You didn't get that from me. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. You got that directly from God in heaven. They didn't get it from Jesus. They're probably not going to get it from us. So we better be praying that they get it from God. And love will drive us to that kind of prayer. Meanwhile, let's never forget that the Jesus we follow, the Jesus we read about, is the Lord. Lord of all creation. Lord of our salvation. Over everything. We were created for his good pleasure. So let's walk worthy of that. He's got a lot more to say about this. I hope you're excited about the rest of this letter. It's not a very long letter, but it is packed. It is meaty. Let's pray here in just a second. I'm going to pray a prayer to close this uh, message out. And I'm going to invite you into this relationship that I'm talking about. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.